we are embarking on this lecture today. And uh, camera, I should let the Internet audience know really quickly that uh, we had a power outage and we weren't sure that we were going to operate. But during the song surface, the uh, lights came on. So here we are, up and operating as we should. Today is September the 11th, 2016. Lecture discussion number 252 on the Book of Romans. So my usual disclaimer, if you have missed the previous 251 lectures, well, this might be a little bit difficult, but I hope not. I try to make them uh, include as many trails backward as possible to bring everybody the same. I should also say we have six pounds of fudge that came to us from John and Norma in Pennsylvania. And so... Uh, <laughs> I mention that because uh, I want the rest of the vast Internet audience to know that somebody sent us six pounds of fudge. And what's the obvious question? Why isn't it, yeah, 12 pounds of fudge? You know, we'll eat all the fudge that you send us. I absolutely guarantee that. And so uh, we have gotten cookies from Australia. And, and Dr. Peter, I got your letter. As you know, I wrote him back, and I appreciate uh, your contribution, as always, and the rest of you who write me as well. It's really amazing. I don't know how to thank you or what to say to you. So welcome back. Anyway, the rest of us, those of you on the Internet, I hope you have enjoyed the death throes of the Alaska summer. The cold and darkness is now here. It's upon us, which is why we choose to live in Alaska, because we like that. We we look forward to the dark cold, or so we say, and it lasts for four months. On either side is one month of birth pangs, or one month of, of new life, whichever one you want to, what we call the spring here is still four feet of snow. But right now, we're in now that birth pang part of the cold darkness, or what the continental United States calls September. October is the event horizon, that's of the black hole. Once we pass October, nothing escapes. It's a little astrophysics humor. I know it's very little, but I still do it. I think it's funny. And I delight in my intended humor, even though I'm the only one. Okay, two weeks ago, because I knew it was hopeless to confront the advent of the Palmer State Fair and in its entirety... As is my, and so I, what I did is I always do whenever this kind of thing happens, I threw a mess at the board, an absolute, just stood back and fired at it. And I did that, uh, the plan being to sustain the class and the vast internet audience until we all trudge back in. Think of it as a trip to Costco to buy a 55 pound bag of pancake mix or 30 gallons of peanut butter. That's what I was doing purposely. And because of all that debris, perhaps you might not remember much of it. And we were at the three arcs. We have three arcs. I can write them, identify them as arc, arc, and arc. That's not a seal impression. But if you wish, one would be noadic. One, of course, is mosaic. I not necessarily... Ah, mosaic. And the other one is the Ark of the Tablets, or if you will, the Ark of the Testimony, or if you will, the Ark of the Covenant. My blue pen needs refilling, and I will go to the green pen now. Why don't I refill them, you ask? 
I still have time. I still have one that's left. I don't have to. I can procrastinate through green. That's why she thought that I had any other reason. We're going to focus today primarily on the Noah. Well, no, I'm going to actually focus today on all three of them, so I shouldn't say that. But you need to know right off the bat that the Noahic Ark is mentioned in 614 of Genesis, and it is mentioned with the word... There, I got it correct. Carfar. Carfar. It's covered inside and out, the Ark of Noah is, with Carfar. Now, anytime you have a discussion on Carfar, you've got to begin at Genesis 6.14, because Genesis 6.14 is the first mention of the word. The first time Carfar is mentioned in the Bible. And every time you have a first mention, pay attention. Go back to it and see its original usage. And, and in Genesis 6.14, Carfar is translated predominantly as pitch by most translators. Has been that way for centuries. Question is, is were they right? You want to think of pitch as bituminous, you can. That would be correct. Or bitumen or bitumen. It's a tar-like substance. It's essentially asphalt, except it's opaque, as it is described in Scripture, which means, of course, uh, uh, it has a... Well, we'll get into how it actually looks here in a minute. Let me just stop right there. You can't see through it. This is immediately, by the way, controversial, because Carfar is in the Old Testament 102 times. Again, 614 is the first mention, but it's in there 102 times. It is only only described as pitch, translated, translated as pitch in Genesis 614. That is the only place. In 73 of the 102, and I'll neglect the, re- the remainder, but, but just for now, for today, in 73 of the 102, it is translated blood atonement, or atonement, if you will. But the blood aspect of the atonement is such that it is inseverable. So, it is perfectly correct to say blood atonement, or atonement blood. To repeat, one place it's pitch where it is being described as being on the inside and the outside, completely encapsulating the boat of Noah. Everywhere else, predominantly not everywhere, but 75% or 73% of it, it is blood atonement. And it also carries this covering inside and outside aspect to it. And I should also in, uh, include, since most of you are going to immediately ask about Exodus 2.3, that is Moses. Moses, his box. Well, before I say that, let me say this. The Hebrew word for ark, Moses' ark, Noah's ark, the ark of the tablets, generally means chest or box, sometimes coffin. And that, that word, the Hebrew word for ark, was used in Genesis to refer to Noah's ship. And the only other place that the word for ark, or that we use as ark, is in 
The only other place the Hebrew word appears is in Exodus 2.3, which is Moses' ark. So I have these two immediately uh, unique. The Bible intends for us to notice that the two belong together. Sometimes you'll see Moses' ark translated basket. But it is the exact same word as the Noah ark or the Noatic ark, and it is the only other place in the Bible where these words are. Now, as you know, Moses' box, chest, coffin is also covered with pitch. But the word is not kafar or karfar. The word is zepeth, C-E-P-H-E-T, E-T-H. So I have two different words for the covering of the arcs that are described identically by the same word. Zapheth means to liquefy. That's the root word or the root of the word. Zapheth is used to describe one other place in the Bible. Where do you suppose that is? Sodom. In the Dead Sea, Genesis 14.10. Let me put that on there for you. So I have the description of the pitch of Moses, the covering inside and outside of the mosaic box or the mosaic chest or the mosaic boat or the mosaic coffin, if you wish to call it that. I have that being used to uh, describe Sodom and the Dead Sea. So not just Sodom, but the Dead Sea. So we're going to have to investigate the relationship between the Mosaic Ark and what happened at Sodom. Now, the ancient classical Latin name for the Dead Sea is Lacos Asphaltides. And you can see the asphalt that we have maintained in the English language. It's the Lake of Bitumen. It's also the Lake of Salt. It's 1,380 feet below sea level. And this brings me always, when I do this, I have to bring in Joshua 3.16 because Joshua 3.16 is so important to understanding why Christ was baptized. Joshua 3.15 and 16, the Jordan River, the descender, the Jordan, it descends. You can think of it this way. It descends into death and judgment because it empties into the Dead Sea or the Lacos Asphaltides. And it, uh, and it says that its origin, where the Jordan, or the descender into death and judgment, originates, it says in Genesis, uh, Joshua 3.16, is at the city of Adam. So at the city of Adam, the descending river of death and judgment into the Lacos Asphaltites uh, originates in Adam and terminates in the Dead Sea. Does that make sense? That's not an accident. And that is why John the Baptist performs Christ's immersion. Because Jesus God, this is God, right? Perfect humanity. He puts, Christ makes sure that John the Baptist baptizes him in the Jordan River. I'll draw the city of Adam for you. Okay, so here's the city of Adam. And it descends into the Dead Sea. And the tremendous heat there, beautiful drawing, isn't it? 
right there, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus Christ, who is God, has no sin, remember, hopefully you do, is perfect, is omnipotent, and he decides that he wants John the Baptist to baptize him in that spot. Ask why. That is the exact spot, as most of you know, if you've been here for any length of time, where Elisha floats the axe head. And obviously, our soul, you can see how it all works together. Our souls are trapped into the descending death and judgment river into the Dead Sea, of which is so low nothing escapes from it. It has got salt in it, which is fascinating, and it is filled with asphalt. And the sun beats on it. Evaporation is the only method of escape. And you can argue whether or not that is in fact truly an escape. In the midst of that is where John the Baptist immerses Christ in the exact spot that Elisha floats an axe head. An axe head that was precious, that was lost, fell into the Jordan River, which is descending from... You can see the soul aspect of this, I hope, right? Our souls, prior to salvation, are in that river and we're descending into death and judgment. And there is no hope of escape except an axe head fell in that river and Elisha throws a branch in and Second Kings 6 and the axe head floats to the surface and so you see why Christ said, put me in that spot where that axe head came up. That axe head was so precious in its time that you could not... Uh, you could not pay for it. You couldn't, if you lost it, you had no possibility of buying another one. That would make sense as you see the symbolism, right? Our souls, when they're lost, there's no possibility we can buy our axe head back. It has to be floated. And Christ is clearly the branch that Elisha throws in, Second Kings 6.6. 6. John is in the Elisha position, and Elisha is also Christ simultaneously. It's very complicated. The man of God, it says there, says to the one who lost his axe head, reach down and pick it up for yourself. Now, there's a doctrinal issue if you ever had to come to see one. The floating axe set obviously has this soul on a pathway, a river of death, to be trapped in a place that uh, has no escape. So Christ, not needing to be cleansed, he's God. He doesn't need baptism. He wants to go there because that's part of the branch prophecies. There's two significant branch prophecies. There's more than that. But the most significant, in my view, is this Elisha's branch and, of course, Moses' branch. He throws a branch in to do what with water? It's poison makes it drinkable. Christ makes sure you know that he's the branch. And when Israel went across the Jordan River and it heaped up, uh, I guarantee you it was in the exact same spot where they were with the ark. Enough of that. I repeat all of that again to emphasize the pieces that are being presented. The ark is covered inside and outside with blood. As with the Ark of the Tablets, the Ark of the Testimony, where all of the acacia wood is covered, it's encapsulated with gold. I didn't write gold. That's really funny. I just saw it. Here's what I wrote. Where all of the acacia wood is covered, encapsulated with God. My goodness, I was right. How lucky. 
But that's exactly the case. The ark of the testimony, the acacia wood, the wood represents humanity and it is totally covered in gold. No wood is showing. And that gold represents the deity, the godhood of Christ. That's the foundational, definitive symbol of Christ uh, in the Old Testament and his infinite godhood being an absolute authority over his perfect humanity. And I want you to notice how I phrase that, that perfect humanity part. His humanity is perfect. Have no position otherwise. If you find yourself ever concluding that Christ's perfect humanity is in conflict, if if you ever think the wood somehow got through the gold, then you are in the ditch, doctrinally. And I'm sorry if that offends you. Infinity necessitates omnipotence. You have to have omnipotence to possess infinity. Omnipotence cannot be thwarted. It's omnipotence. I can't thwart it. Nor would a perfect, sinless humanity ever make an attempt. Because perfect, sinless humanity would understand that omnipotence cannot be thwarted. All possibilities otherwise are then eliminated. Christ would never have done anything to thwart his deity. And his deity cannot be thwarted. Does that make sense? Maybe, maybe not. If you have Christ trying to thwart his omnipotence or his infinity, then you have made him what? Illogical. If he's illogical then he's fallible. If he's fallible, then what else is he failing at? And you've opened the door to your salvation being destroyed. For those who wish to identify these kinds of discussions, doctrinally, this is called the impeccability of Christ. Or, if you wish, some have the peccability of Christ, saying that Christ, in fact, can in his humanity somehow, he could destroy his godhood. They don't say it that way, but ultimately that's where their argument goes. And I know, I know, movies and televisions, blah, 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 you've seen them all. They delight in serving up images of a confused, fearful, rebellious, ignorant Christ. They do it all the time. They never stop doing it. It is not done without intelligence. Let me say that to you. If you think these positions on Christ are are conceived by someone that does not know the difference between peccability and impeccability, you would be mistaken. They intentionally present to the masses a Christ that is impotent, confused, foolish, unaware, frightened, when that is not possible. All of that is blasphemous heresy, not a redundancy. Profane apostasy is what it is. To attach confusion or fear to the omniscient, omnipotent, and infinite God is a profanity. Did you raise your hand, sir? Yes, um, as you know, someone, for those of you on the internet audience, someone uh, here to remain nameless, Dave, I uh, said that uh, my nemesis, I have, in a, I have been in a struggle with uh, the person who wrote, who writes uh, Bill O'Reilly's doctrinal work. 
I don't remember his name off the top of my head. Who is the writer of those uh, those things? Um, Dugard, I think his name is Dugard. I used to think I was in a struggle with Mr. O'Reilly himself, but I, I am not. I've heretofore been reminded that I'm in a struggle with the author of the books, who insists on on this presentation that uh, Christ uh, was peccable. And, uh, and he wrote a book whose whole purpose was to make that point to as many people as he could. And that is a profanity. He doesn't know that I'm in a conflict, or that I am publicly my vast audience against theirs. Okay. They don't know that I'm out here, nor will they care. But just remember for yourself, reread any time you come up with a scripture that's confused you, where you think that, that Christ is somehow not omnipotent, not infinite, not omniscient, not omnipresent, not omnibenevolent. In other words, always good. If you ever find a position that, where you think scripture has inferred that to you, then you are not reading it correctly. You are uh, allowing, you are, you, just go back to the gold completely covers the wood and you'll be fine. And then start asking, how is this the opposite of where I think it's at? How am I wrong? I promise you, you approach it that way, you will always figure it out. If you don't want to go back to the gold covering the wood, go to the, per- the blue and the purple and the scarlet, which is where we are. The blue is the Godhood of Christ. He is the I am. The blue is the I amness, if you want. The crimson is the perfect life blood of his humanity. It's perfect blood. It has to be perfect. It has any flaw in it. It's no good for the transfusion. We all need the transfusion. We have to have perfect blood. His blood is perfect. Automatically, that makes his humanity perfect. Just the blood alone. That means he would never, it's impossible for him to put some kind of confusion into his Godhood, it's just not going to happen. It's ridiculous on its face. The purple is the mystery of this, the mystery of godliness, 1 Timothy 3.16. I can't put that enough. It isn't a coincidence in my view that Joshua 3.16 and 1 Timothy 3.16 are covering the same subject. God has manifested in the flesh Infinite God adding perfect humanity. And that, by the way, is the primary meaning of the blue tassels. So once you have that understood, you're into blue tassel territory. As an aside with this Timothy 3.16, Joshua 3.16, consider taking the time to place Genesis 3.16, John 3.16, Revelation 3.16, Job 3.16. Put them all in a set with Timothy and um, Joshua. I think you will discover something quite remarkable, invaluable. But today, we're not going to do that. We're going to cover arcs and asphalt and the Dead Sea and salt and Noah and Moses and Sodom and the tablets and the uh, the manna, the rod, Moses' manuscript, and this blueless woman that shows up with her cup of filth in Revelation. That's where we are today. 
And hopefully, <coughs> I've established that the carfar, the pitch, the blood covering, so let me start making the racings, the blood covering is pretty darn important. I hope that I change one of your perspectives today about what you think about something in the Old Testament. Okay, I'm going to make the case that Carfar, Carfar, is blood covering inside and outside. That's what it means. We translate it pitch, but you should start saying no. It means covering inside and outside with blood. There goes the wind again. So if our power goes off, uh, you'll know it's it's not sabotage. It's just Alaska. Lindsay told me she said. Uh, that she was the one that caused the power outage so that she could get another day off from church and go home and eat something. I can't remember what she was interested in. I, I think it rhymes with cookies. But uh, I told her it was remarkable, her, her, uh, her abilities to shut down all of the hillsides simultaneously. Nobody's going to ever suspect that it was to just get out of Cliffside's lectures today. She'll, be, she'll escape. So if it happens again, we will not blame the weather. We will blame Lindsay. And hopefully they catch her. Okay. The blood covering, the kafar, this inside and outside aspect of covering with blood. Even the gold has a blood aspect to it. Do you recognize that? Timothy 3.16. Leviticus, that, that blood covering is present in all three of the arcs. Now, Leviticus 17 Remember, I hope you do, I have this counterfeit priest to Aaron. And the counterfeit priest is the guy eating blood. He's the devourer of blood. And he's doing it in direct opposition to Aaron the high priest. Aaron the high priest has got a blue vestment of the ephod, right? It's underneath, or over the top of, I'm sorry, his robe. He has this jeweled breastplate. And there's an, the jewelry represents, or the jewels represent the tribes of Israel. He has the, the, never mind, I'll skip that for now. I'll get to it next week. The two stones for deciding whether or not God, what decision making God would have for you. We'll do that next week. He, the, the breastplate is attached with blue cord. Very important to know that. The ephod is blue. The the plate over the turban that is attached to the turban and over his forehead is also attached with blue cord. So I have all of this blue on Aaron while he, simultaneously I have a devourer of blood. Both of them functioning, if you wish to think of it this way, side by side. Two choices here. Two decisions. One guy with his blue cord, turban, plate, head plate, Gold crown, if you will, they call it both. Holy crown with his blue vestment, jeweled breastplate, blue everywhere. And he's got blood. And he's going to the mercy seat of the Ark of the Testimony with his blood. And he is pouring it and sprinkling it on the mercy seat. 
The other guy is devouring, is eating the blood that he has. So to repeat, this is all done on the day of atonement. Atonement. Or you would know it as, if you were... You will hear it said like this a lot, Yom Kippur. Your question would be immediately to ask, is there a relationship between these words and Karfa? So to repeat, this is done on the feast day of at one mint. Let me change this. At one mint. At one mint, of course, is an English Latin word. It means at one mind or of one mind. Mintum, minta. Reconciled. That's not what it means to the, at one mint has a relationship to what's happening on the feast day of Yom Kippur. But that's not what Kippur, Kippur, Karfar means. What's the guy in blue doing? He's not eating his blood. What's he doing with his blood? He's pouring it on the mercy seat, sprinkling it on the mercy seat. He's soaking the mercy seat of the Ark of the Tablets or the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant with blood, and he's doing it on Yom Kippur. So I want you again to note the similarity between Kippur, Kippur and Karfar. Those of you who are predisposed to research the Hebrew, you're going to find that karfar is the common usage of the verb to cover. So, this means to cover, inside and out. Kipper is the more complex or the more intensive usage of the same verb. So, it also means to cover in an intense manner, in a more complex manner. Yom Kippur, then, is not the feast day of at one mint. It is the feast day of cover with blood. That's what it means. It's the feast day of the blood covering, which is a process, which is what God the I Am instructed Aaron to do. Clad yourself with these, this blue, the blue cord, the blue vestment. Put the plates on and then go cover the mercy seat with, a, with blood. And Aaron did as he commanded. He covered the mercy seat with blood. What is the mercy seat? It's a lid. It's not called a lid. What's it called, do you suspect? It's called a cover. So, Aaron's job is to go to the cover and cover it with a covering. It is the feast day of covering. That would make sense, wouldn't it? I hope you're following me here. The mercy seat is the lid of the ark, and that it is that which covers the stone tablets. It's the, the, the box, the coffin, the boat is shielding, the cover is shielding over the box. Above the mercy seat is the primable light, 
the Shekinah glory, the light of life, the first light. Primable means first, not prime evil. Primable, first. The first light. So above the covering that is covered with covering is the Shekinah glory. If, you, if I've confused you, blood is used as the covering. And it is, and it is put there by the person who is the coverer. So I have the coverer taking a covering and putting it on a cover. On the day of covering. What is he emphasizing to you? Why is God doing this, ask? Does he think we're idiots? Well, you know, uh, he calls us sheep, doesn't he, Bill? Ingleberries in the back and mucus in the front, and we run off of cliffs like what? The idiots that we are. Please do not have, and I know, I taught school, you know I did, and the first, every, every year I had to go to a seminar on please make sure your students have high self-esteem. How do you think I did on that? I did not do as was uh, described. I told them the opposite, as they will all attest. If they ever show up here, I'll stand, and a few of them do, as you know, I'll stand them up and I'll say, what did I call you when you were 16? They will tell you, you called me, Mr. Chronister, the absolute stupidest person that I will possibly ever be of my entire life. And I did. Did I get in trouble for that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. You bet. But God does not uh, does not impress me. Nah, he doesn't have to impress me. God has not impressed upon me that he has uh, he he values my misguided self-esteem. Humble yourself before the Lord, right? Come to Him in humility. Jesus Christ, the mercy seat, the primal light, the light of life, the first. Of all light is over the mercy seat. John uh, 8.12, Christ describes himself as the light of light. He says, I am the light of the world, the primable light, Genesis 1.3, and the light of life. So he says, I am the light that struck the earth in Genesis 1.3. That is also the light of life. Because once that light hit Genesis 1.3, the formless and void dark world, what happened to it? Life. He says in John 8, 12, I am that light. I am the I am. The first light. The foremost light. The light that brings forth light. Or life, I'm sorry. Let, let there be light equals let there be life. So when Bill said, let there be light, what Bill really is also saying is let there ha- be life now. So to reset this then, Aaron is to bring the blood of the sacrifice to the holy of holies. The devourer of blood is over there eating his blood and he's not bringing it to the holy of holies. So keep this juxtaposition, if you can, in your minds. Hopefully I'm doing it justice, which I know I'm not. Aaron brings the blood of the sacrifice to the holy of holies while wearing specifically described and designed blue clothing. And he has adornments of gold plates, one on his chest and one on his forehead attached with blue cord. And Aaron takes the blood through the veil 
which is made of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, Exodus 26:31, and it is very thick, extremely heavy, and it's made of blue, purple, and scarlet thread. The veil has images of cherubim on it. So next week we're going to have to figure all of that out. So Aaron, and inside the veil is what? More images of cherubim. So where do we go to find out what cherubim means? Number one place is Genesis 3, where cherubim are first mentioned. Also we'll end up in Ezekiel. We'll end up in uh, discussing uh, Satan, because he after all is the highest cherubim that has ever been so anointed. So, back to where I was. Aaron is now in the Holy of Holies. He's got all this blue on. He's got his uniform. Does he know what it means? Probably not. But he's obedient. He's doing it. He's got it all on. And he's in there with the blood. It's filled with incense, the sweet savor. So there's smoke everywhere. He's got a rope around his leg. He's got bells on so they can hear and see if he's still alive. And then he pours and sprinkles the blood of the mercy seat. I'm sorry, all over the mercy seat, which has above it the Shekinah glory light of life. So let me try this again. Aaron is covered with a holy crown, a robe, a blue vestment. He goes in the tabernacle of Moses. There you go. Tenth of Moses. It's really the tent of God. Tabernacle means dwelling place. This is where God lives. Do you want to know his address? He had one here. Number one, Moses Avenue, if you wish. This is where he lives. He's inside of the nation of Israel in a tent. And inside of the tent, he's in a compartment that's a what? Tabernacle is a tent. A tent is described in the Bible, how so? It is a symbol of your body, your tent wears away, and what's left? Your soul. The physical wears away, and your soul is exposed. Your tent dissolves, the Bible says. A tent is a covering. He is standing back with a hammer, isn't he? Hitting us over the head. A tent is a covering. It is covering us. You are not your body. Your body is a tent covering you, your, your, yourself, your personhood, your mind. Aaron is covered. He goes into a covering. He takes the covering material that he has, the blood. He sheds it over the covering seat that's covering tablets. Inside of a box, a boat, or a coffin. Above the covering seat is a light, the light, and it's doing what? It's covering the covering between two cherubim that were on the veil that's covering the Holy of Holies inside the tent that's a cover. As you know, whenever the Ark of the Covenant traveled outside, of the tabernacle. Whenever they disassembled it, what did they do with the Ark of the Covenant? They covered it. They covered it. That's what they did. 
The ark must be covered with its specifically designed covering. It's got to be hidden and concealed when it's moving. Walking amongst the nation of Israel, it had to be covered. Christ is this ark. He says so. I am. Christ hid himself while he moved through Israel, but you all knew that. The ark uh, of the tablets is acacia wood. Again, it's covered completely. Inside and out. The ark of Noah covered inside and out. The ark of Moses covered. I hope you're getting the drift here, Vern. He is just beating us with this theme. The importance, the critical characteristic of blood and covering. It can't be ignored. He's making sure that you will never not know this. It's the day. The day of covering. Of blood covering. Why a blood covering? You have to ask that. Why? Why is blood the covering material? It covers the, all the coverings. Leviticus 17, 10, 1 through, or 10 through 11. That's where the blood eater is, by the way, right? Gosh darn it. He's in Leviticus 17. Leviticus 17 says the life is in the blood. Why a life blood covering? Why do we have a life blood covering? Why is it that the blood makes a covering for the soul? That's what it says in Leviticus 17.11. It says the blood is the life and the blood makes a covering for the soul. Your Bible might have this word. Your, your Bible might have at one mint. Your Bible might say the blood is atonement for the soul. But you need to know that the word means cover, covering, not at one meant. That's the best the English translators could come up with to describe this. I'm not sure that it has done us any favors. I think it would have been better to leave it cover. Therefore, Leviticus 17:12, God said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood because of what the blood is doing, because of what the blood does on this day of covering, the feast day of covering. You don't eat it. It's for covering, not eating. I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood. No nor shall any strangers who dwells among you eat blood. And that's going on right now. One side is using the blood as God has described. The other side is, is devouring it. Okay, where am I now? Who can know? Aaron is in the inner covering of the great covering with covering blood. For the purpose of covering the covering plate that is covered by the light of life. On the feast day of blood covering. While that's going on, we got a guy outside of the tent, the covering tent. That is a redundancy. I know as a highly trained professional, I can use redundancies to illustrate the particular. I got this guy eating blood. He's, I, I told you, I think it's simultaneous to Aaron. I submit that. It's deliberate. He knows. Devouring blood is prohibited. He's doing it anyway. 
He knows what devouring blood means. He is the devourer. So now you get an idea of who he's representing. The blood that is the covering of the soul is being eaten instead, in contrast to its purpose of being a covering element, if you will, or a garment. So now the most obvious of the obvious questions. Why is this man doing this? He's eating this blood. What's his plan? What's his motive? He's teaching everyone that's watching him to eat it instead of bringing it to Aaron where he will take it inside the Holy of Holies. It is clearly the absolute opposite of what Aaron is doing. So when you ask, why is this man eating the blood? You also know this is the same question as why was the man gathering wood on the Sabbath? It's the exact same question. Or if you wish, anytime you're going to discuss the man gathering wood, you're going to have to, you should, not have to, you should also be discussing the rebellious son. Both of those two men, the man gathering wood and the rebellious son, they're forever eternally connected by blue tassels, which the woman grabbed to stop the bleeding, the lifeblood from leaving her. Now we detour. I beat that as hard as I could. I hope I made some sense. I hope you never call it the Day of Atonement again. Have I called it the Day of Atonement many, many times? Yes, I have. I am a highly trained professional, always intended to fix it. Today was the day. How come I have not fixed it before then? Because until I got to be in my 60s, I did not like being controversial. That's the truth. I was very careful. I was afraid of offending people. I'm still afraid of offending people. I don't like being hated. But uh, I recognize I'm running out. I, this is not a really good thing to say, but I can look inside my hourglass. I can see. I start counting the sands and get within 10% now. So I'm in a hurry. It's the day of covering. That's exactly what I'm doing. Now I'm going to detour and I'm going to pick up some pieces from Revelation 17. I added in Revelation 17 last week. You might remember that. You might not, not last week. When was it? A month ago. Whenever it was that Lori left. Sixteen days ago. Where every day I had ice cream. She doesn't know that. <laughs> I also had lots of potato chips, too. <laughs> oh, God. You know you can find potato chips at Walmart for $2 for a great big bag now? They're generic. I know this. And if you buy 16 bags of potato chips, that's one for every day, right? That's a lot of potato chips. I didn't eat all of them because I have three dogs. They love certain kinds of potato chips. Not all potato chips, but... Uh, we did, uh, she will hear this, you know, she does. She listens every Sunday. So. Hi, dear. You wondered why there was only one bag of potato chips left, didn't you? Because that was the 16th bag. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, back to Leviticus, I'm sorry, back to Revelation 17. I added it in 16 days ago or so. 
at the very end. I just threw it out there, hoping that you would figure out why. We will need to take a very close look at this woman that is here in Revelation 17. I think it's correct to compare her to Aaron, specifically on the day of covering. Aaron has his gold crown. He has his gold breastplate. He has the jewels, the vestment, the ephod, the blue covering over the white robe. He has the bells. He has all of the uh, pomegranate embroidery, his, uh, uh, his crown plate. And if you remember, that crown plate says, Holiness to the Lord. The great whore in Revelation 17 also has a crown that says that she is the mother of all harlots. So now we're going to see where this contrast develops very fast. I'm going to go very fast. I'm almost done. Here we go. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying, To come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot, the great prostitute, the great whore, if you, however you wish, who sits on many waters. So he, this angel who has come to John the Revelator, the Apostle John. It's one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls from the previous chapter. So chapter 16, chapter 17 together. And he says, I'm going to show you the judgment of this great prostitute who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. Does that remind you of anybody else that was carried into the wilderness by the spirit? I hope it does. At least Noah Israel was carried into the wilderness. And of course, Christ. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. So now I have a prostitute on top of a scarlet beast. Which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold. And I made the case over and over again. She's got purple, she's got scarlet, but she's got no blue. That's not a mistake. She didn't forget the blue. She doesn't have it. Got no blue. Helps you know what blue is. And adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and filth of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw, John says, I saw, John speaking himself, the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled. This is John the Apostle. What's it take to marvel him? I marveled with great amazement. What's it take to amaze John the Apostle? What's this man seen? He was amazed by this, so I suggest that we decide that this is going to be extraordinary. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? You shouldn't have marveled, but he marveled. I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out. So the beast was. When was the beast? The beast is 
not. When was the beast is not. And will ascend. When will the beast ascend? So the beast was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. So it will ascend out of perdition and then go to perdition. How did it get into perdition? And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. So the people that won't marvel, they're in pretty good shape, huh? When they see that the beast, when they see the beast that was, and I'm going to change it here so it becomes obvious. When they see the beast that was, and they see that the beast is what that is not, and they see the beast that yet is. So let me read it as it is written. When they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Back in, in chapter verse 11, it says, The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seventh and is going to perdition. So you see that repeated three times. It's pretty darn clear in my view that the beast was and the beast was not or is not. He says is not. So at the time that John wrote this, John knew that the beast was. And John knew that the beast now is not. And he told John that pretty soon the beast will be ascending. So the implication is overwhelming. that John knew who the beast was. So when he saw the woman on the beast, he was amazed. He shouldn't have been amazed. Because she was wearing purple and scarlet, and the beast was scarlet. But John hadn't figured that out yet. He figured it out really fast. And I stopped there at verse 11. I, I should make a list, but I don't have time. Let me just run ahead. There's, there's, you know, there's 26 items on the list in the interest of class survival. I'm not going to do that. Uh, let's see, where can I go? The list is, is going to go on and on and on. It begins with the angel of one of the seven bowls. So ask immediately, which bowl is this angel? In other words, of the bowls that are previous in the previous chapter, an angel comes. Which bowl did he have? He's telling John that judgment is coming for the great harlot. So this is about the judgment of the great harlot. And at least we know that chapter 16 is the, is the infrastructure of chapter 17, the substrate, if you will. Note that the subject begins to widen immediately. I can't get a hold of what I just talked about, chapter 17, without chapter 16 helping me understand it. And I've got to go to Daniel 7. That's critical. Daniel 7 explains ten horns. Why are they horns? Antichrist is called the little horn. Why a horn? Why not anything else? God picked horn. So bring a lunch next week. The woman sits on many waters and sits on a scarlet beast. So which is it? She sits on many waters or she sits on a scarlet beast? It's both. Verse 15, if you read on, tells us that the many waters are the entire population of the world. The peoples, the nations, the multitudes, the languages, and the great whore rules over the people. She has authority over them. She's ruling them. A couple of quick observations. She's a prostitute. She has perverted something that is designed for the opposite of what she's using it for. She is adorned as a bride or as a priest would be adorned. She's adorned very similar to how Aaron is, but she has no blue. 
Whatever the great prostitute is, we know that she is the opposite of what she's supposed to be. We know that a prostitute is not a virgin bride. The prostitute, again, is ruling over the earth. She's not serving. She's leading. Priests are supposed to serve. Next week we'll get to Melchizedek. He's the only priest king ever allowed in the Bible. That means he's who? He's Christ. Got to be. Only Christ can be priest and king. It's against Mosaic law otherwise. So I have a priest, adorned priest, to use the priest uh, symbol that I, I believe that she reflects. She's a religious figure. She's ruling instead of serving. The whore, instead of leading the nations to the truth of salvation, she instead is devouring them. She is what? Described as what? Drunk with what? Blood. She's intoxicated with blood. Doesn't mean she drank the blood. Means she's intoxicated with it. She's a devourer of blood. She's a blood eater. As an aside, any and all references to Babylon and languages leads me to Nimrod and Babel, Genesis 10 and 11. So we'll be heading there. This woman, a counterfeit bride priest, rides upon the scarlet beast. The scarlet beast is full to the brim with blasphemy. Again, in opposition to the truths of God. Note that the names of Christ Versus the names of blasphemy. I have Christ and all of his names. I'm going to have the scarlet beast and all of his names. Why doesn't this woman have any blue? The blue is missing. She has scarlet. She has purple. But she's got no blue. You know why? Let's ask it another way. If she could have blue, would she have it? See, that I hope defines the issue. She doesn't have any blue because it's impossible for her to have blue. She can get purple. She can get scarlet. She can't get blue. It's impossible. That's why she's described as not having blue. Now, you consider why it's impossible for her to get blue. Hopefully, you've already figured that out. You understand what blue is. It's impossible for her to have it. Does the world think she's blue? Yes, they do. But she's got no blue. Once you figure that out, then you're on to the mystery of the scarlet and the purple, which is what amazed John. Was he amazed at the woman? Oh, probably. But he was unbelievably stunned by the scarlet beast that she was sitting on. That amazed him. And I hope it will amaze you. And that is something we will do together next week.